This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Russia's already attacked Ukraine with hybrid warfare. We take a deep look inside their disinformation campaign. One of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is Russia has had essentially an active disinformation campaign going in Ukraine for the better part of a decade. Brett Schaefer is head of the information manipulation team at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. So you've seen these efforts to portray the Ukrainians as the aggressors, also to portray the United States and NATO as the aggressors, essentially saying that it is NATO and the U.S. that is pushing Russia towards war, not vice versa. One of the things that we've seen that is a little bit new in the last two months, though, has been this claim that Ukraine, with the assistance of the United States and NATO, may be plotting what's called a, what's referred to as a false flag operation. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The U.S. intelligence community says a Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent. We've heard this before, but today, February 23rd, 2022, they seem more certain of this than at any time in the past. Here's John Kirby, Pentagon Press Secretary. Russian forces uh, continue to uh, assemble uh, closer to the border um, and uh, and put themselves in uh, uh, an advanced stage of readiness to to act uh, to to conduct military action uh, in in Ukraine again uh, at virtually uh, any time now we we believe that uh, that they are um, they are they are ready. I'll just put it, leave it at that. They're ready. So it looks like war is going to break out. But Russia's view of war is different than what many of us are used to. They practice something called hybrid war, which utilizes a variety of elements, including kinetic warfare, cyber attacks, and information operations or disinformation. And that's what we want to talk about today, how Russia uses disinformation. Joining us is Brett Schaefer, senior fellow and head of the Alliance for Securing Democracy's Information Manipulation Team. Brett, there's been some funny business going on with reference to Ukraine and what Russia is supposedly trying or planning or hoping to do. It's very difficult for a lot of people to figure out what exactly they want to do. And a part of the reason for it is disinformation, which is your uh, area of specialty. Um, Tell us what you found in terms of Ukraine and the West and this so-called false flag operation and other uh, campaigns that Russia may have underway. 
So one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is Russia has had essentially an active disinformation campaign going in Ukraine for the better part of a decade. I mean, at least since they invaded in 2014, but probably before that as well. So a lot of the narratives that we're seeing right now have been narratives that they have been pushing for eight plus years. In particular, there has always been an effort to frame the Ukrainians as neo-Nazis or at least neo-Nazi sympathizers. Now, there definitely is an element uh, in Ukrainian society, a far right problem there. But certainly the Ukrainian government is not a fascist government, not a sort of neo-Nazi government, but that's the framing that Russia has tried to uh, push across, particularly to Western audiences for years. So you've seen these efforts to portray the Ukrainians as the aggressors, also to portray the United States and NATO as the aggressors, essentially saying that it is NATO and the US that is pushing Russia to, towards war, not vice versa. One of the things that we've seen that is a little bit new in the last two months, though, has been this claim that Ukraine, with the assistance of the United States and NATO, may be plotting what's called a, what's referred to as a false flag operation. It's just essentially uh, plotting some sort of provocation, uh, either filming it or uh, recording it, documenting it in some way, blaming it on the Russians and using that as a pretext for a larger war. Some of these claims have been very specific. So, for example, they have for months been saying that the U.S. might be assisting Ukraine with a chemical weapons attack uh, in eastern Ukraine, and then that the U.S. would essentially blame Russia and use that as a pretext for war. So that is something that we've seen recently that obviously is a, is a sort of bigger concern than what we've seen over the last eight years because it gets into some of these very specific claims that could trigger a, a wider conflict. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts for a minute, how they do this. Um, several years back, 2016 to be specific, uh, the United States was victim to... Russian disinformation, a Russian inter election interference campaign. This was from U.S. intelligence. Two years earlier, there was a situation, and you're probably aware of this, that took place down in the southern part of the United States, St. Mary Parish, Louisiana. There was 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, an operation where the people in Homeland Security were getting inundated by phone calls from people who had gotten these bogus text messages talking about an explosion at a chemical plant. And there was even some information on, on YouTube and the Internet talking about Al-Qaeda was behind this or ISIS was behind this. It turned out later all of that was lies. It was something that was a, pr a product of this troll house in St. Petersburg, Russia, or some kind of troll operation. How is Russia and where is Russia um, where does this disinformation operation, where is it rooted? Where is it, where is it headquarters? How does it work? Well, one of the things that's tricky is it's hard to say it's rooted anywhere. I mean, it's a little bit more uh, dispersed across Russia. I mean, you do have this trolling operations. It's unclear at this point how uh, operational or effective the original Internet Research Agency troll farm in St. Petersburg is. But Russia has sort of multi-vectors where they can launch uh, information attacks. So what we track is often what we call uh, in the overt space. So these are state media accounts. These are diplomats. These are government officials. These are the type of messaging uh, outfits that are directly attributable to the Russian government. So those are sort of known 
entities. Where it gets a little murkier is in what's sort of the gray and black propaganda space. So these are the uh, more covert operations where you would have websites, for example, that just appear to be an independent news outlet, uh, but perhaps have a connection to Russian military intelligence. Then you have trolling operations where people are uh, creating accounts, oftentimes hundreds, if not thousands of accounts uh, that present themselves as being sort of local citizens in a particular uh, targeted area, but they're being operated by somebody with connections to the Russian government. So that's obviously what we saw in 2016. You had these troll accounts that were presenting themselves as Americans, but in fact were being run by a guy in St. Petersburg. And if you look at these sort of multi-dimensional abilities or sort of multi-prong uh, attack surface from Russia, it allows them to flood the information zone with a, a bunch of different content, oftentimes competing narratives at the same time. So it really can kind of confuse audiences. So audiences no longer really understand, you know, what's what's true, what's not true, who can you trust, who can you not trust. But Russia can also marry this with their significant cyber capabilities. So we've seen in the past, for example, hack and leak campaigns. We saw that with the Podesta emails in the U.S. context. So they have the ability to hack into sensitive equipment, uh, extract damaging uh, text messages or emails or recordings, sometimes manipulate those recordings and then use their information capability to leak that. They can also do things like defacing websites. Uh, so there's many different sort of layers uh, uh, or, or levers, I should say, that Russia can pull to kind of influence what people see and what their perceptions will be of reality. And again, this happens in the overt through accounts and outlets that we know are connected to Russia, and then also in the covert, where it's just not always clear uh, where attribution lies. So in order to make this digestible for the layperson, what you just said makes perfect sense. You know, it's murky. It's hard to figure out where this is coming from. It's hard to figure out who's doing it. Uh, and it, 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 it is designed to confuse people and designed to make people doubt the veracity of U.S. institutions, or, or in, 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 the, in the case of Ukraine, doubt what Ukraine is up to and NATO, et cetera. So then you've seen what the U.S. has done and NATO and the, the allies have done in the last few weeks, um, putting out information, basically saying, OK, no, this is not true. This is what they're doing. This is we know this based on our intelligence. How would you assess the impact of what's been done? on this operation? I'm uh, I'm of two minds about it at the moment. So on the one hand, I think it is a positive development uh, that the US government, this administration has taken the tactic to actually get out ahead of disinformation campaigns before they're released in the wild and can do damage. I, I think the instinct in the past has always been to treat uh, intelligence about disinformation campaigns as if it were classified. So it'd be shared internally. They would be sitting on accounts. You'd be collecting evidence and data. But meanwhile, uh, this particular narrative or you know problematic piece of content is just sort of spreading wildly across the internet. So there's been a change in tactics there of, of really trying to preempt things as opposed to debunking them after they've already been sort of released and, and started to have an impact on people's perceptions. I think where the U.S. response missed the mark a little bit is in the fact that they didn't really 
back up their claims with much evidence. And I think there's only so many times that the government can come out and say, Russia is planning this. We know Russia is attempting to do this without giving the public, particularly non-American audiences who are already skeptical of the U.S. government, particularly U.S. intelligence, given some of the U.S. intelligence failures in the past. There's only so many times you can do that without providing the receipts. So I would have liked to see the U.S. government provide a little bit more or at the very least acknowledge the fact that, look, we can't give you everything right now. There are sources and method concerns. But at some point, we know we're going to have to deliver more evidence uh, to prove our case. And that's where I think things are a little problematic right now, because I think you, you look at the chatter online and the Russians seized on this. They really looked at it like, look, who could trust the U.S. government? Look at Iraq. We were lied to about Iraq. Look, recently in Afghanistan, we were lied to things about there. And so I think there needs to be more of an effort to really prove their case going forward. So fighting disinformation is more than just knowing what that disinformation is and understanding what the objective of the purveyor of this disinformation, as in the case with Russia. But you've got to have a a sound plan for addressing it. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Last week, there were several U.S. spokespeople. Ned, Ned Price at the State Department, John Kirby, yeah. Pentagon, and other people. Although Kirby made a pretty good argument for for for, for his situation, but but it, a lot of folks saw this situation with Price at, at the State Department being grilled about why can't you tell us more? And he he did say, you know, uh, sources and methods are, are you know are are, are are of importance, and we can't just we we can't we can't run the risk of breaching them. But um, I'm just wondering. You know, this is part of what Russia knows, that it's hard to do this without giving up stuff. And then once you give it up, then they kind of, you know, it's it's annoying. You know, you give it up and then they <laughs> they start doing their thing. They start dancing around with that, right? And, and this is the advantage the Kremlin has in the realm of information operations. If Kremlin-connected media pushes out a story that the U.S. is going to run a false flag attack in Ukraine, which they have. Journalists from TASS and RT and Ria Novosti and other Russian media outlets are not grilling Russian government officials about it. So they don't receive the same sort of critical response to their unfounded claims that we receive, which claims that may actually have a lot of validity behind them. And, you know, that's the benefit of living in an open information society. Like we should have journalists that are grilling Ned Price, but it does advantage authoritarian actors who don't have to respond to an independent media or to critical public opinion. And they know this, it's an asymmetric playing field. And they've consistently taken advantage of the fact we have an open information environment. We have free speech. We don't want to censor content. And they exploit that because we can't do the same thing in Russia. They'll just shut it down. And so this, unfortunately, is, I think, just an advantage authoritarian state actors are always going to have over the West and the U.S. in particular. Yeah, we can't we 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 keep trying to play by the rules with an entity that doesn't play by the rules and you're you're going to lose every time. So what do you see coming down the road um, as these information operations continue? Because we still haven't we, we still see Russia saying, yes, we want to talk dip- diplomacy. But speaking with several uh, Eastern European defense officials over the last two days, they have said, look, uh, you know, they're playing this 
we want to talk diplomacy. They're continuing to do the military thing. They've got these hybrid operations going on and information operations going on all over Europe, even in, you know, there's suspicion that they've been in, involved in activities in Africa that have destabilized governments. So what do you see what do you see coming now? Where, where are they now? What, what's next? Well, I think you'll continue to, we'll continue to see from government officials the sort of song and dance that they're still seeking a diplomatic solution here. Though, uh, from everything that you're able to gather, their, their requests are just not reasonable. So it gives them a way of saying, hey, we're trying. And, you know, the Americans and NATO, they're, they're just not playing ball. But of course, the, the requests are just, they're unreasonable. They're, they're not even giving us sort of a starting point to work with, but that's part of the strategy, both to convince audiences at home that they're trying, uh, but also sort of to swing public opinion globally of saying that like, we're the ones really trying for a diplomatic solution. The US and NATO are trying to undermine it. Um, you know, th this is just a really cynical ploy. I think going forward, we're going to see definitely more of the same, but I think the concern is if this moves into an actual hot war and there's an invasion of Ukraine, Russia has, again, significant cyber capabilities that will allow it to disrupt communication platforms in Ukraine and will allow it to deface government websites. And you will have a situation where they're able to create just massive amounts of confusion um, because they'll be able to shut down information platforms at strategic moments, um, push out false information through various channels. And, you know, Russia also has the capability of shutting down any sort of dissenting uh, opinions or commentary in their own information environment. So we've seen Russia lean on U.S. platforms in the past, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, to take down content that they have deemed to be against Russia's national security interests. And so this, again, is this unfortunate asymmetric advantage Russia has. of They can pressure American companies to remove content, truthful content in some cases, because they're relying on, on Russian law, which, of course, doesn't really hold up to our sort of standards of the rule of law. And so that, I think, is the real concern when you look at the information environment around this potential conflict is Russia just has a lot of advantages in the fact that they can shut down anything that they deem to be problematic for their security interests. And, and we can't do the same and we shouldn't do the same. I guess the one optimistic note is that we're in a way better position than we were in 2014. Yeah. In 2014, we were caught totally off guard by what Russia was doing, both on the ground, but particularly in the information space. I mean, the, the term disinformation was just not well understood even at that point. And so the Ukrainians, the US, our allies, we've spent eight years now kind of understanding the Russian information playbook. Yeah. We have many different sort of organizations, tools to combat it. So uh, if nothing else, Russia is not gonna have the element of surprise this time. Mm -hmm. We we know what's coming. We know what their strategy is. And, and we have at least some tools uh, to push back against it. So um, this whole thing about disinformation is not a new idea from the Russian perspective. They did it before the Cold War. They did it during the Cold War and they're doing it now. 
although back in the Cold War and pre-Cold War days, they didn't have, you know, the Internet and social media, et cetera. They did it with flyers and word of mouth and all kinds of other nasty tactics that Russian intelligence employed, including agents of influence. And they had a pretty big foothold here in the U.S. based on the Matrokin archives and other other information. If you read that stuff very carefully, how did the U.S. defeat that then? And the West d- deal with that then, and, and, and is that useful now, thinking about how that was done? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point that Russia has had probably at least seven decades of experience running information operations, and their active measures are extremely sophisticated. And when you look at their abilities within the U.S., there is no targeted audience uh, that they've had a, more experience uh, trying to manipulate. I mean, they've been doing it for decades and they're good. I mean, they really do understand the pressure points in U.S. society and, and how to create conflict. One of the ways that we combated this during the World War, I mean, there was an active measures working group at the State Department in the 80s. And there was very sort of coordinated efforts to identify, expose Russian influence campaigns to share information with our allies. Some of those things exist at some level now. Um, but I think the challenge is the information environment has changed so significantly. I mean, you outlined that, of course. But in the past, to run uh, a very sophisticated disinformation campaign took a lot of resources and it took time. So you look at their efforts to try to accuse the United States of creating the AIDS virus, which is what they did in the 80s. It took about seven years for them to plant that story into a pro-Kremlin newspaper in India and to have it kind of worm its way through various media sources around the world and eventually kind of pop up in the U.S. Now they can do those things in a matter of days, if not hours, because it's just cheap uh, it's relatively easy to set up these accounts. It's obviously easy to be anonymous. And so it, it just creates a much more difficult environment to combat because we're not talking about how do we keep Russian talking points off of CBS news. We're talking about the entirety of the Internet and the ability of anyone anywhere to log on, to run a search and to come in contact with Kremlin disinformation and to have no idea that what they're seeing is being uh, supported or funded by uh, the Kremlin. So that's, I think, the real challenge currently. So that brings me to my final set of questions or or question. Um, What's your advice then for the average American organization, government agency or person? And they don't have to be American. They can be somebody that is, you know, a victim or a target of this Kremlin disinformation um, effort. What what's your advice for them fighting it? Well, first of all, understanding it and and how to how to how to fight it, how to how to get at it if it's in your community or in your area of interest or uh, where you live and, and work. How do you deal with it? Well, the first uh, this is a really basic piece of advice, but I think it pertains to anything that touches on the spread of mis or disinformation is to know what you're sharing before you share it. The ultimate goal of those running a manipulation campaign is to get real people to believe their ideas and to pick up it, to pick them up and run with them on their own. That that's where they've won because 
ultimately, you know, this is obvious. We trust sources we know more than sources we don't. So if you're able to get somebody who's in a position of influence to essentially repeat your claims for you, then there's, you've created this sort of distance from the point of origin of the false information to the recipient of it. Because now you've got somebody who said, well, you know, my neighbor told me or, you know, this respected uh, local influencer shared it on Twitter. So I think it, it's incumbent on all of us to know the sources of our information and to be very careful before we spread uh, pieces of content or particular narratives without kind of knowing what's behind it. Because once we do that, we become the source and you're doing essentially the work for those trying to manipulate us. At the government level, I think there's a lot of levers we can pull. I mean, we could look at more robust sanctions against those running influence campaigns or certain state media outlets uh, that consistently have amplified uh, false or misleading narratives. And, you know, there's also the uh, efforts we can have to sort of push back in our communications. So, you know, this goes to the the video, uh, the false flag video. We need to be more sort of organized in our collective response and we need to have a clearer message and we need to make sure that people trust us. And when I say us, I mean, you know, both the government, but also civil society, media, et cetera. And so that I think is, is where we need to kind of organize our efforts. Like we need to establish the fact that we have truth on our side, provide the evidence to back it up, expose Russian uh, manipulation for what it is, but then also again, like not do the work for them. You just have to be especially careful of picking up a random piece of information you find from a Twitter account and sharing it in your social circle, because then it just spreads, it goes viral. That's Brett Schaefer, senior fellow and head of the Alliance for Securing Democracy's Information Manipulation Team. Brett, thank you. Thanks, JJ. This is fun. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode. So if there is an invasion, Ukraine's capital, Kiev, is said to be a target. But Malcolm Nance, executive director of Terror Asymmetrics Project on Strategy Tactics and Radical Ideologies says it's going to be a hard target. If that war or Moscow comes from Belarus down through Chernobyl or out west in Yeltsin or Ch Chernayev, all these areas that are just north of the sea, they could, in theory, be down here if they were driving unopposed in two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. But it'll probably take them two to three days. They can get to the city. They're never taking the city. Every person here would, uh, you know, they'll start throwing flower pots out the window at them, much less Molotov cocktails and AK-47s. This, this city will fight. Uh, this country won't fold. And the Russians will lose an enormous quantity of manpower. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. 
It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, it's Jesse Coe from Kicking It With The Coves, and we've got a great, great guest this week. Yes, we do. Leo Byronberg. He's one of the composers behind all the music on the Cobra Kai series. This is the music that Johnny hears in his head when he thinks he's being a badass. So we wrote this piece. It's called Strike First. Now it gets used as the end credits in the show, so I'm sure everyone is super familiar with it. Please rate, review, and follow Kicking It With The Coves on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press. 